Welcome to episode 29 featuring the writer Tom Coyne. I'm Derek Duncan and this is the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm very excited to present this episode because I was able to secure an exclusive interview with the writer Tom Coyne to discuss his new book, A Course Called Scotland. Of course, I'm kidding. Well, I am excited to have Tom Coyne on. If you've been anywhere near golf the last month, you've undoubtedly heard him speak about A Course Called Scotland in print and on podcasts and for a variety of internet and radio programs. Over the last few years, Coyne has become the essential correspondent for relaying stories about the experience of playing golf, particularly in far-off places, particularly in linked settings. He achieved every writer's dream by selling his first book, he wrote, while still in graduate school, A Gentleman's Game, a novel based on his experiences growing up as a caddy. It got better. The novel was quickly turned into a Hollywood movie starring Gary Sinise and Philip Baker Hall, that's right, with Coyne helping to write the screenplay. He then put on his George Plimpton hat for Paper Tiger, a book in which he documented his quest to play professional golf by moving to Florida and dedicating himself full-time to driving ranges, training, coaches, and mini-tours. Next came a course called Ireland, a wonderful travel adventure in which he traverses the entire perimeter of coastal Ireland, on foot, playing over 50 Lynx courses along the way. Now he's back with a course called Scotland, a tale of how he played over 100 Lynx courses in Scotland in less than 60 days, searching for the secret of golf he sure must be hidden there somewhere. His journey culminates in an open qualifier where he hopes to parlay the hard-won lessons of the Lynx, and perhaps some newfound insight into his own life, into a ticket to the 2015 Open Championship at St. Andrews. I've become a huge fan of Coyne and his writing, and this book, as expected, is terrific. Tom has a joyous style that transports the reader to very specific places and frames of mind. It's also a very funny and a very personal book. If you love golf and places that embrace golf, it's a must-read. Even though Tom had been making the media rounds for several weeks, I was still eager to talk about A Course Called Scotland and to explore with him the other topics related to golf and golf courses. I tried to dig us beyond the repeated Scotland narratives and generic interview pablum he's been hearing and to get us into a more wide-ranging discussion. I think it turned out great, but I'll let you decide. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tom Coyne. Uh, congratulations on the New York Times piece. Have have you written for them Thank before? You. No, I haven't. That came out kind of out of nowhere. I think a copy editor recommended the, to the editor that they get in touch with me, and um, yeah, so that, yeah, that worked out. That was cool. They called me on a Tuesday and said, "Can we have something Thursday?" And I was in the middle of a golf trip in Ireland, so I uh, banged it out, and um, and they were, and yeah, and it worked out great. Yeah, no, that's great. It's a good call to get. <laughs> very good call yeah. yeah i don't yeah that time is the times is elusive so that was that was really nice yeah no doubt well it's good to hear your voice i feel like i've listened to you on so many you know podcasts lately and and other you know uh, radio shows and that and whatnot i feel like i i know you sound your voice sounds like an old friend there you go yeah i'm, I'm it's good man the buzz has been has been really uh it's been nice we you know we did it for the open instead of father's day and I, it ended up being, I think, a good idea because there's, uh, you know, it's just a less crowded time. We're getting definitely getting more attention. Well, it's a great book. I, I liked it a lot. And I, I was going to ask you, are you getting comfortable at this point doing all this, all these interviews? Is that natural to you? At this point, it's very comfortable. Um, it was funny. It had been a while since Ireland. Um, the last time I did any sort of media tour kind of thing. So um, 
it it was really uncomfortable like the first week and it's now it's 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 been yeah pr- uh, pretty comfortable well i imagine the media landscape has changed so much since when was when did Ireland come out in 2010 yeah dude it's totally changed. now the whole now the whole like media tour is done from my desk you know like i mean i have gone places and we did golf channel and and we have some events here and there that i'm going to bounce around to but everything now is um it's all about podcasts interviews from home phone it's all digital you know so media the the publicity is completely different now it's which you know which which is good you can reach so many more people so much more easily yeah and it puts you it puts you in a position to be a little bit more relaxed although i was gonna think i was thinking you know you've made it as a writer or as an entertainer when you know you can start to complain about the the press junkins or having to quote unquote do media <laughs> all right <laughs> you know and i'll never i and i, I hope i'm not complaining because i'm always like not to say that you are you ha- yeah yeah my game has always been the hustle like i don't i mean i i really never say no to anything and when you get to this part of it it's like wearing a different hat you know and you really have to become a salesperson which i'm fine which i'm fine with doing because i'm terrified of the book not selling so you know you just hustle 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 yeah it well isn't it interesting the golf community is such in one way it's a closed-knit community and there's a lot of support so just as an observer seeing the reaction to the book across different platforms it seems like it's been a, a, a great success i don't know if that translates into national sales but everybody's supportive of it everybody's interested in this project and this book and, and what you've done it's been awesome you know the relationships that i've cultivated since ireland getting to know the guys, you know, getting to know guys like yourself or, you know, being introduced to you through Adrian's podcast and yeah, following up with people I meet at the PGA show. And like, just that was like 10 years of like making good relationships and sort of getting inserted into that like community you're talking about. So yeah, that when the book does come out, it had, you know, people are interested, which is awesome, you know? Yeah, it's been it's been really really nice. Yeah, and you've managed to do what I imagine every writer in this business going back to the beginning of publishing has always wanted to do and that's kind of be one of those few select voices who is the go-to guy on golf, and especially golf courses. You know, you've made a name for yourself as being one of the most experienced travelers and a beautiful writer. And so I, I imagine that that you know, that has led to doors for, you know, you're writing with the golf, the golfer's journal, uh, different mm-hmm. magazines, different publications all over the country. Did you ever envision that you would be kind of one of those few guys who have that national golf writing reputation? Uh, absolutely not. Um, oh, are we doing the pod right now? Yeah. Good. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Do you want to go I'm back like, and start right, over? Should I give you the, should I give you the, <laughs> Should I give you that? I'm just chatting. This is just a, we're just clearing uh, our throats here. No. Yeah. Is it, is it, or, um, or I'll give you the polished answer. I get that question all the time. Like, I'm not like, no, I I'm like, like how you hey, this is DJ it, and the fish, and we're on the, we're live with Tom Coyne. No, I know. I was waiting for your intro music, man. Um, I forgot. I'm not doing radio. No, no but no, um, this is, that comes later. <laughs> Post-production. No, I think I never expected any of this, you know, the, um, in terms of like becoming, if I am known for my take on golf courses or maybe Lynx golf is like the niche that, that, that I've kind of pursued deliberately or accidentally, but you know, maybe if that's something, if I'm known for something, it might be that, but no, that was not part of the plan at all. I went to, uh, I went to school to be a fiction writer. I wrote a novel that happened to be set at a country club 
and that sort of got me, uh, you know, and it was a book that ended up on the, you know, the golf shelf. And so, uh, that gave me the chance to write for some, some of the magazines and sort of next thing you know, I'm a golf writer. So it was, uh, no, I, I didn't set out saying like, I love Lynx golf courses. I want to someday be called, you know, an expert on them or have played most of them in the world and all that. Um, it's sort of just gone, you know, it's just, it's like you go project to project and then you look back on what it all adds up to and, and what, it, and it's pretty cool what it has added up to that I can, you know, say that I've played X amount of Lynx courses in the world that I've been to X, Y, and Z. And, and, uh, I guess that does give me the opportunity to write about places that maybe not everybody can. So yeah, it's, it's worked out pretty, pretty well. That experience gives, does give you an aura of authority. You're one of the, I don't know if y'all count amongst yourselves, but you're one of like the few people in the, probably in the world that's knocked out every Lynx course in Ireland and, and more or less every Lynx course in Scotland. I mean, do you guys have like special robes that you wear when you get together or secret handshakes? We do. We have a club and, um, yeah, we wear hooded robes. It's me and George Pepper. Uh, we're the only right. ones at the club, but we have a good time. No, it's yeah. funny. Like I wonder, I, I was thinking about that the other day. Um, I mean, I know there are, there are like links searchers out there. If you go on some of these websites where like guys check off the courses they played and I was doing that one day and, and I was ranked pretty high on my list of my life's list of links courses, but there are some guys out there who, who are doing this, like we've been doing it for 50 years and are determined to play every true links in the world. And so, but, but at least in the writing world, yeah, I mean, I guess, um, the, yeah, it would be a pretty small handful. Yeah, um, it's gotta be. So definitely, you know, like I said, George Pepper's in there, but I'm sure I've even probably got a few on him. Um, at least probably in Ireland maybe mm -hmm. um john garrity he's played a lot of links um and and folks i'm forgetting but but, but yeah, there's so many like cool rare niche. places that, that you talk about and really describe beautifully in in your books a course called ireland and a course called scotland just to do the radio thing we're here with tom Coyne talking about his book a course called scotland <laughs> but you know to get up to the orkneys and the shetland islands and you know the, that northwest coast of scotland that that's a real obstacle for most people you know you've got to really want it badly to get up into those areas yeah, you have to be doing it's it's a total obstacle and you have to really almost be doing something like this to to get to, you know, Wallsey up in Shetland. It's not somewhere that you're going to find by accident. It's not something a place you're going to put on your itinerary your two week itinerary of Scotland, you know. Um you're not going to go to the Orkneys probably. You're probably not going to the Outer Hebrides maybe, but and so it requires like a kind of mission like this where, you know, I was taking this sort of no stone unturned approach to fighting the secret to golf and, and basically going, trying to find my best golf, my best game, the meaning of the game, you know, in the home of golf. And that meant I had to go everywhere. So, yeah, I did end up in places where, um, prob I mean, you know, I, I showed up at Wallsey up in, in, in Shetland and, or the Shetlands, um, you know, and I'm met by the secretary who says, you must really love golf to be up here, man. And, <laughs> yeah. and when, you know, when he lives there, when he tells you that, you, you pause for a second and you do say like, man, I'm nuts or this is nuts. So, but, you know, it's the nature of doing stories like this and, and doing these books. If, if I just wanted to write about playing the Rota or playing 
my bucket list of famous courses in Scotland. I mean, really, I don't want to read that book. You know, I, I, I want to read a book about someone doing stuff that I'm probably never going to do <laughs> so that I can enjoy it through them. And, and uh, you know, because people, you're not going to probably go to some of these places on your own. Hopefully, uh, the books will, you know, it sounds a little corny, but, you know, will take you there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess that's some of the idea of like, I mean, the, to, to get a book published, to get it sold, to, to make it interesting, it's gotta be a little bit out there. At least that's been my experience. At least that's what it needs to be for me. So that seems to have worked so far. I hope. And I think that one of, one of the things that's so attractive about this book and, and the course Carl Ireland too, but, but specifically a course called Scotland is the way that you are, I'm impressed by, as a writer, like I'm, I'm incredibly impressed by your ability to find ways and scenarios to describe and I guess to convey the fundamental atmosphere uh, of courses all around Scotland and to bring a unique, something that's unique about the writing approach to them. Because I'm imagining that as you're going around and you're playing 107 golf courses and you're in Scotland and they're all links, there's a, a lot of similarities. I mean, there's only so many ways you can describe golf holes and only so many ways you can describe locations that are all kind of similar. And yet you yeah, right. you have, does that come easy to you to be able to find, to, to crack the nut, to find the no. key to getting into each one yeah, of these no. individual places and describe it so well? You're right. It's not, and thank you for saying that. And to make that, them sound I, independent I and unique. So when you're reading it, it doesn't seem like they're all, you know, flowing and blurred together. Cool. Um, I'm, I'm glad you're saying that because it's really hard. I mean, <clears throat> my th- <laughs> I need uh, thesaurus.com is just sick of me looking up dune, you know, <laughs> yeah. looking up sand. <laughs> how, many, how many ways can you describe? That's right. I don't Are there any adjectives for wind? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. How many ways can I say windy? Um, no, I mean, there's a, certainly there's a little bit of that in terms of the just the diction that you're trying to keep fresh and original. But yeah, that's the big challenge. Like the courses start to run together in my imagination. So how do I make sure that that doesn't happen for the reader? So, but there usually is some element of each course, uh, where it's situated, something in the backdrop, something in the clubhouse, something about one hole, you know, that, that will stand out as unique to me. It'll be the thing that, you know, I make notes as I go around. But it's really at the end of the day where I sort of collect all my thoughts in a journal. And it's at that point where, you know, if there were six holes that all look the same and kind of run together in a blur, they're, they're not going to end up in the story because they probably didn't end up in my journal that night. You know, yeah. what ended up in my journal was, uh, you know, the, the, whole, the course is kind of bookended by black cliffs and, and, and that vision is that vision will stay with me through the journal, through when I write the book, that it's stuff I can still see now. So, so that stuff. You know, the good details, I think it's the, the fun thing about writing this kind of nonfiction and going out and living adventures, the good stories and the good details present themselves and they stay with you. You know, the good, and that's the good stuff that gets into the book. Um, the, 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 the stuff that's a little more wishy-washy or a little bit softer in your memory probably wasn't all that great anyway and thus doesn't end up in the book. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I also think that the a way, the most effective way that I try to write about places is to make sure that I'm writing about people um, and the people that inhabit those places or the people that join me at those places. Because, you know, I, the same, like I was saying before, like I don't want to read a book that's just about 
this fairway and that green and this routing and these contours and these shot values and all that stuff. Um, I, great stories are about characters. So I, I invited a lot of people to this adventure for that reason. And they brought a lot to the story and they made the courses memorable because of what the things that they did there or how they saw it or the time that we had, you know, that, that was really important. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a word for that. It's called storytelling and you're great at it. And you, <laughs> You do, you. And you do that. Yeah, I mean, you, there's a, it's a really inventive and refreshing thing to read is how you will describe a golf course through the, somebody else's personality or the way they're playing the golf course or what they think or the history of the golf course. You'll bring, you tie into that. You know, you, can, you find a lot of different doors, doorways to enter each location that you travel through. It, it's, it's really well done. So thank you. Take that compliment. And thank you. I will. <laughs> I will. Yeah. I mean, that's the, it's funny how like in Scotland, the, um, like you said, I mean, some courses it's a matter of, I just want to write about this history, you know? And then at the next course, you know, your friend hits the clubhouse with his drive, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that gives, and the next one you run into some sage Scottish caddy, you know? So it's, you know, the courses present you these, these different ways to talk about them and, and that's what's great about writing about golf is, I mean, yeah, it can be boring if you, if you'd let it, but if you're just, you know, if your eyes and your ears are open to the curiosities and the, and the small details, which I think they need to be for any kind of writing that you're doing, no matter what you're writing about, you know, golf just gives you tons of stuff. I couldn't help but thinking, and again, to just to reiterate for the, all the, all the listeners and anybody who hasn't bought the book yet, which you should, if you love golf is Thanks. The the theme of it is you're traveling to Scotland. You're trying to find the quote unquote secret of golf. You're trying to mm-hmm. unlock golf's mysteries. You're playing every links course around the perimeter of Scotland and England, for that matter. And you're doing it sort of all as a prelude to try to qualify for the Open Championship in 2015 at uh, at Brunsfield. And so there's this there's the playing element of it too. You want to go there and, and play well. That's important to you. That's a big theme of this story. And it, I, I juxtapose that against one of my favorite lines from a course called Ireland, and we talked about this in the other podcast uh, when we did a book review on that. Is you talk about how you you got to Ireland and you you know you found ways to embrace how to play links golf, the, the the how to embrace the land and the wind and the nature, and it was very important. And you said you know you spend so much of your time in, in paper tiger trying to learn how to hit the perfect six iron. And right. that's sort of like, that embodies a lot to me, just that notion of, of guys out on the range with their, with their track man. And you know, they're, they're trying to get on plane and they're just trying to pure that long, high spinning shot. That shot's not useful in Scotland. So I yeah. I'm, and I'm trying to, and so you're over there, you're trying to play well, but you're playing links golf. So you must've had to make a lot of adjustments in your game to adapt to that and still find a way to score well. Because it, it's one thing to play links golf, and there's another thing to score playing golf. So yeah. how, how, did you, how did you reconcile the two things, working on a swing and, and working on being a really good player, but also adapting that to playing all these links courses? Yeah, well, that's, what was, that's how this book is sort of a combination in some ways, I guess, a Paper Tiger and a course called Ireland. Um, you know, cause I am actually the golf in this book does matter. The scores matter. I'm trying to actually accomplish something as a golfer. Whereas in Ireland, I was just sort of trying to survive, you know, survive that trip. Right. So I did. Yeah. So I like that. There's one cliche that the broadcasters use or, or Butch Harmon says it or something, you know, 
playing golf swing that, that I actually like is a cliche when they say guys are playing golf swing instead of playing golf. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I grew up playing golf swing and I still love to do it, you know, to where in my head, I'm not really thinking about necessarily where the ball is going. I'm thinking about like where my right elbow is going to be on the backswing. And, um, and that sort, and I can still get back the golf over here for whatever reason that my like parkland, um, beautiful golf course, benign conditions, it allows me to think about that stuff because I have the luxury to do that. Cause it's, Scotland, it's not asking it's, you to think about much else. Right. Yeah. You not, know, I, not your I, course in particular, but that's American golf. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to hit the perfect golf shot because I have a perfect lie in perfect conditions and a perfect pin for what I want to do. So um, I, it sort of like enables you to, to kind of do that. Um, but it's not, it's not necessarily what you want to do What Scotland and links golf forces you to do is to play golf, to just figure out how to get your ball from A to B and that there, and it also suggests that there's a hundred different ways to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's exciting. And that's, um, something I did have to, something that I basically thought this education over a hundred courses, that that's what the education would be. You know, that, 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 you know, I learn a lot of different things, the secret to golf and the story and the things that I find out about golf and about myself, you know, there, there are a lot of different things that I learn, but when it comes just down to the, to the golf itself, you know, that's the thing that I, I hoped that a hundred courses would teach me is how to get away from trying to hit perfect golf shots and just learn how to play a golf course. Um, learn how to, you know, I see a pin in the distance and what's the shortest route there, what's the quickest route there in the least amount of strokes. And Scott's are, are really good at that. I, I was always just struck by guys who have, you know, really homemade, funky-looking golf swings or have um, – and have equipment that's, you know, out of like your your da- your grandfather's set in the basement, you know. Mm-hmm. And they just knew how to go out and like – and post 42 Stableford points because they they knew how to golf their ball and 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 it's funny like you won't see not a lot of practice ranges at any of the courses I went to um practice in in Scotland and in Ireland for what I could see for the most part um and I'm not talking about like the young studs who are at the academies or whatever like but but like golfers in general you know practice is playing playing is practice so just this, there just seemed to be this understanding of, um, you know, keeping the ball in front of you and, uh, keeping it low and, uh, and just sort of managing the golf course that way. Um, so going over there with my American mentality of like driving driver wedge game, uh, that was like the antithesis of how, uh, I should have been approaching a lot of the courses over there. And eventually, I shifted my perspective and started to play differently. And, and, and it's funny, I was just back in Ireland playing Lynx golf last week and it does come back. I, I remember the fun of taking, you know, my move in Scotland became, all right, I take two extra clubs and I hit three quarter punch shots all the way around. Mm-hmm. Like the second half of the trip, I didn't hit a full iron swing like at all. Um, it was just pointless. It was just too spinny. And, and it just, you know, throwing the ball up into the air was just, what's the point? It's, you lose all, you're turning over all control of your ball. Um, so just hitting these like three quarter punchy things that would land short and run up and, and using your imagination that way. Um, I did, I I mean, I, I learned that I learned to pop my putts 
And I think it just made me a more creative golfer. And it just, it, it was a lot of fun too. Um, but when I come back here, I, I get right back into that routine of like high and deep and long swing and all that. Um, you know what? Cause that's fun too. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. it was, it was difficult to make that transition and to get to the point where, you know, I could, I could really score a little bit, uh, in the wind. It took a few weeks before I even, you know, I went over there as a scratch player and it took a few weeks before I even sniffed par yeah. on a Scottish course. Yeah. And know? that's kind of a, that's kind of a theme. Your adaptation, re-adaptation to Lynx Golf is kind of a theme. Personally, my favorite movie about baseball is Bull Durham. And one of the reasons is because it just gets so into the the mindset and the culture of baseball and what players think. There are scenes when Kevin Costner's up to bat and he's wondering what the pitcher's going to throw and he's trying to, you can just tell he's out thinking right. himself. Like, and, and you kind of write about this in a course called Scotland, how you're, especially after you're not playing well, you know, you just, these f- different thoughts flood your mind. Like on, on one occasion, you think, you know, you find a key one day, it's like swing easy. And the next time mm-hmm. it's the theme is go low. And then the next is, uh, I'm a great putter. You're, you're, you're just in your yeah. head constantly talking about or thinking about like, what, what do I have to do? And that's so golf. That's just exactly what we all do, whether we're playing in Scotland or, or America. It's one of the, it's one of the real pleasures about the book is just to kind of get into that, that golfer mindset that head head space that we all go yeah. through when we play yeah i mean i think this probably more than anything i've written um is a book that does get into my head more and for better or for worse i mean so far the reaction has been really positive um because this is a much more personal story and but i mean but it's it's full of a lot of other characters and places obviously as we've discussed but i i, I probably put a lot more of me into this into this into this one um, I'm certainly more vulnerable about things, more vulnerable about a lot of things. And, and I'm as honest as I can be about what's going through my head. And, and those were the things that, you know, that the idea that you stumbled across a swing thought that works, uh, I, you know, when you're struggling and then you just make one simple change and everything clicks and you can't miss. It's just amazing how you go from thinking of yourself as someone who's useless, hopeless, has no <laughs> chance. And you just, you know, you, you pull your right shoulder back and you swing that way and everything's coming off the middle of the club face. And within a minute, you're already thinking about, well, I wonder if there are going to be rooms in St. Andrews for my family <laughs> because I'm going to make, I'm qualifying for the open. You know, I, I can't miss. And uh, of course, we all know that the frustrating thing is, yes, today's cure is usually not tomorrow's. And that was certainly the case as I went around Scotland and I did have to sort of locate a new thing to be working on or a new thing to be thinking about. But I think that's, yeah, I definitely think that's a common experience to golfers and grinders. Um, and I had a stretch like a month ago where I couldn't miss the ball. And, and then for the last two weeks, I haven't been able to find the center of the club and I just want to go back. I want to go back in time and just, what was I doing? You know? Um, yeah. I guess that's why we that's why I keep doing these crazy adventures. That's why we keep going out. That's why we keep that's why we keep chasing. The fixes don't last, and, uh, and there's there's strokes out there that have been left behind. You know, and this so this book is also a, a travelogue. Obviously, you're going all around Scotland, and one thing that comes through very clear is the way the Scots treat golf. 
I yeah. wonder, so so this is you know this is a kind of a theme that I talk about on 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 my podcast quite a bit is not just the difference between Lynx golf and American golf, but just the mindset and, and the way different cultures embrace golf and how important it is. You know, in America, golf is, it's really always been a luxury, you know, for it's sort of been a rich man's sport. And right. in, in Scotland, it's not, it's the opposite. Do you, do you see any possibility in the United States that there could be a cultural shift where we had embrace a different style of golf, a, a more of an open public style that's more casual that's that's it, truly embraced by communities i mean the only place that i think in america that I've, I've come across this i was in pinehurst a few months ago and you drive into the village of pinehurst and around there and you just see golf left and right and everybody's playing yeah. it it's and it's the reason that place is there in the first place but other than that you know it's it's golf is just a completely different sport in america and i'm wondering if like if your travels over to ireland and scotland give you any hope that that's possible at least in some places in America, or is that even desirable? I think it's very desirable. Um, but is it possible? You know, a place, so you say Pinehurst, I would add to that Winter Park in Orlando. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, a nine-hole municipal course right in the middle of a neighborhood, uh, the Winter Park neighborhood near Rollins, Rollins College. And it's just phenomenal. And every, you know, so there's been a lot of raving about that. And that would be to me like the model that, that to me is like reminiscent of St. Andrews because St. Andrews is, is public green space. It's, uh, the clubs don't own the golf course. Uh, it's closed on Sundays and it's used as a, you know, a public, it's a public park. And so winter park, like reminded me, it had that vibe. It It definitely has the feel of being public space. Yeah. So um, it, I think that's so desirable, but as long as our top 10 list of golf courses in the U S are 10 pl- or what nine or eight places that most of us will never, ever, ever see, mm-hmm. um, or set foot upon unless maybe we get tickets to the open or something. It's, it's, it's never going to happen. I, I don't, I don't see how, um, you know, that transition comes about. I mean, country clubs are certainly under more stress and pressure, um, in, I think in, in America than they have been, you know, post recession and post the tiger boom, your, your average American country club is, is really looking, looking hard for members and trying to sustain, um, sort of the country club model when people are spending their time and their money in other places. And it's, uh, so that landscape is changing. So maybe does that mean that golf becomes more accessible, more public? You know, you have all these corporations now scooping up, but were formerly private clubs. So that's kind of changed things a little bit, I guess made things more accessible, but the model is still just different, you know, and, and it comes from just a different mindset. You know, the mindset in Scotland and Ireland is that the playing ground is something to be shared, you know, that it's, it's a field, it's something it's not, ex- there's nothing exclusive about a field, um, no matter how fancy it is. Uh, now what can be exclusive are the clubs that are attached to it. You know, the club is kind of, can be kind of a special thing. Um, even though the memberships would still be incredibly reasonable price wise. Um, but you know, the course itself, you know, you, you see these places that, you know, like a place like La Hinch, that's like right down in the middle of the town, you know, comes down and into the town in Ireland. And there's just kids in jeans and sneakers like out on the putting green until dark. And you look at that and you're like, that's, that's just a beautiful, beautiful sight. 
And if that happened at a club here outside of Philadelphia, um, the kids would be probably be trespassing <laughs> or, or their dad would get a letter because they were up there in jeans and sneakers. Um, so, you know, I don't know how the game came from like this place of, you know, comes from Great Britain, which we think is the place of propriety and exclusivity and class, you know, and we take their game and, and we make it snobby, you know, um, it's a bummer. And yeah, I would love to see a change, but I guess maybe it's, it's, maybe it's like our, the way we look at, we look up to achievement in this country, specifically monetary achievement. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying the way that we put that on a pedestal is probably why those exclusive clubs are at the top of that list and why we all, uh, and why this, this notion of golf is as a status symbol is perpetuated because I don't know, people like status symbols in America and Hey, I like wearing my, my Pine Valley sweater around. I feel cool. Um, even though, because it says Pine Valley under the shield, it says that I'm not a member there. But nonetheless, it still signifies something, right? Specific. I, something, it's like it's a double-edged sword. Like I kind of like that there are these places that, ooh, it's special that I got to go there. But uh, there's just no doubt about it that the system, the way things are done in Scotland and Ireland, uh, it's just it's the it's really the way it should be. And frankly, it makes it so darn cheap for the members, you know. You, these clubs, their memberships, they're paying like a thousand bucks a year to be a member of, of some world renowned golf club and golf course uh, because their their tee times are under their their dues are underwritten by American tee right. times. Yeah, it's beautiful. But one thing that frustrates me is is the media's role in this, and I can't, we can't blame everything on it because I I do think, like you just said, the problem goes back to really the beginnings of golf in the United States and, and the, the type of people who had the, the resources and the connections to, to found clubs and courses, you know, they were, a lot of them are old hunt clubs and you mm-hmm. ride your horses and hunt foxes and um, not all of them, but you know, that, that component contributed to it. But what frustrates me is, is how the media will take a week like last week at Carnoustie and, and, you know, the, whether it's the television programs or the magazines, and everybody will write about how great Lynx golf is and how beautiful Carnoustie is and how great it is to see the ball rolling. And look, at, isn't, isn't brown great? Isn't that a great color for a golf course? Isn't this interesting? And then when that's over, they, they pack up and, and head to Glen Abbey in Canada for the Canadian opener, Firestone. And, you know, and they just forget about it the rest of the time. And that's not right. everybody. There are very important components of the media who understand the cultural relevance and importance of, of having kind of a community level golf and have affordable golf in that Scottish model. But the, the, the people who really matter and can make a difference really just give it lip service. There's really no, you know, concerted effort to pursue that in America. So I don't know whether it has to come from the top or whether it comes from the American golfer from the bottom through demand. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, so I, it's something I, I wrestle with and, and, and talk about a lot and, I don't have any answers. I don't well, see a lot like, changing. Yeah. It's tough because the, a lot of those people you, you talk about are going home to their private clubs as well. And, and, I, and so that I'm not a hypocrite. I'm a member of a private club as well. And, and I love it there and I love the people there. And, but, and I, I, I couldn't not be because if I'm not a member of a club, um, in this, at least in this area, I can't really play. Um, it's, you know, golf around, there are, uh, 
some there's some good you know public there's some very good public tracks in the Philadelphia area but for all the good golf we have it is almost it's 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 like 98% private um so you have to belong to one of these clubs and and yeah you would love for yeah we say these things about Carnoustie but like if Firestone was brown or uh, you know it wouldn't look so beautiful they wouldn't write out wonderful uh, the Firestone looks. Yeah, or, they, they or say they, they lost be, the course. Right, they would say they lost the course. It was. It's funny, like, you know, there were some bad bounces and some terrible, um, you know, some balls careening off into some terrible places at the Open, but you didn't hear anyone complain about it. You know, it starts happening at the U.S. Open, and it's it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Shinnecock is, uh, right, they've lost the course, they've lost control of the tournament, all this kind of nonsense. Um so yeah, man, I'm with you. I, I, I uh, though I am a product of and a participant in the, uh, the our, our sort of private club uh, system model here. If there was a way to, um, you know, to to make the game, you know, let the clubs be what they will, but let the course be a place where um, you know more people are welcome to play the game. Uh, that would make a difference. But I think it's like you said, it's like it, it goes all the way back to who founded these places, what golf came to represent in our country as a status symbol. Um, and, you know, and the thing that's also not helping the case is that the way that people broke that barrier and and people from any background sort of got into golf was through caddying and uh, and to see the decline in in caddies and caddy programs in, over here. Um, which is another difference between golf here and golf there. Caddy programs thrive over there. In fact, they usually don't have enough caddy, you know, enough caddies for the for the demand in some of these clubs. Uh, whereas in um, American country clubs, uh, rely on cart revenue and and all that stuff, and, and sort of caddy programs are going by the by. So, you know, that's a bummer too. The caddy issue is so interesting and has so much potential. Yeah, in in, in so many ways. On one hand, it's you could, I mean, I don't see why you couldn't hire a bunch of 14, 15, 16 year old kids, you know, after school or on weekends and just say, Hey, just hang out and, you know, pay them 10 bucks a bag. That's a pretty good, you know, <laughs> for a couple hours worth of work. That's not a bad thing, but you're also, you're also training a new generation of, of kids basically to grow up with an appreciation of golf. That's probably been lacking in the majority of people who've come into golf over the last 20, 30 years that, that, being connected to it from an early age, seeing a variety of different people, learning the game, learning the etiquette, learning kind of the culture of golf. You know, a lot of people think that's, that might think that's stuffy, but I think that's really important to, to perpetuating and handing down a healthy game to the next generation. That could, that could all be done through caddy programs. Oh, no doubt about it. It's, it's so hugely, I mean, I grew up as a caddy and, and my first book was about caddies, a gentleman's game. And and that's where I learned everything about golf. I mean, it's probably where I learned most things about life, you know, you know mm-hmm. getting to yeah. see working with like, I was working with real people with real problems. Um, and in the afternoon, but we were carrying bags for guys who seemed like they had the, the world by, you know, by the titleists, if you will, you know, they, they were, who were kind of running things. And, and yet on, I was also seeing the, the other side of life and it was just this incredible education. Um, and so as if, as we're losing caddies and caddy programs, yeah, we're losing the next generation of golfers because all my friends who play are in our forties, we all grew up caddying. Yeah. And, uh, 
and if and, and you, you lose the caddies, you lose the next generation of golfers. And and like you said, it's it's through caddying that you learn all the like. Golf is such a hard sport to enter, like in your late, in, like even in your twenties or thirties or forties. There's so many barriers to entry. I've found because I have a friend who just took it up in his thirties, and you kind of watch them go around the golf course, and and there's just so many small things that you take for granted as a golfer. You know, where do you set your bag down? You know, where do you place the pin? Um, just have the right way to mark your ball, like little stuff that no one's ever going to teach you. Now that's all the stuff that not to interrupt you, Tom, I'm sorry, but like, yeah, yeah, you learn that as a caddy or even in, in junior programs, you know, I learned that kind of thing when I was 12 years old there, you know, you mm-hmm. had to go out and take an etiquette test. Exactly. And you learn, you know, being around golf as a caddy or in a junior program at that age, I mean, you're, and you're picking it up then it's just going to be something that's going to be with you. It's going to be part of you, you know, for the rest of your life, you're going to have that. But, um, you know, it's not something a guy, a guy who's, or a guy or woman who's 40 years old doesn't want to go out and suck at something and even if, or doesn't want to go out and feel embarrassed like they don't know what they're doing. And golf has all these like kind of quiet secret handshakes that we take for granted that people who are new to it must seem, it must seem very mysterious. Yeah. You know, when you say we're going to play five, 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 you know, look at the look at you and say like, what are you, t- you know, what language are you speaking? Whereas I knew all the, I knew all the gambling lingo by the time I was 13 years old. So, which is very important, of course. If that's maybe, you know, critical. <laughs> very critical. I, I always, I almost think that, I don't know how you do it, but if, if the USGA, for instance, was going to ever invest real money to, to making the game better rather than, you know, doing whatever they're, you know, making television commercials or doing what they, whatever they spend their money on now is, almost make it mandatory if you want to play a public golf course you have to take you know or offer like a 15 minute refresher course on etiquette you know this is what you, yeah. you know this is if you're going to ride in a cart and you come up to the to one golf ball the other person gets out and walks over to their golf ball so they're ready to hit you know just exactly. the speeding up play would go so far to addressing a lot of the, the american issues that we're talking about right now yeah where to put the yeah. pin how to when to tend it how to rake a bunker where to set your bag when you get to a green those are just elementary things that if we could somehow just like do a quick refresher course and even introduce new players even if they're adults into that it would go a long way i don't know how you would ever implement that like so many things i don't know how it could ever come to be but it's we need it <laughs> it would yeah, help no, absolutely it would be really nice and the and one thing you could alleviate a lot of of uh slow play issues etc if you just you know if we stopped relying so much on getting back to the caddy thing if we stopped relying so much on carts if we got over the stigma for on pull and push carts right you know and you're always hey you're right at your ball and you're not uh yeah you're not sitting in your cart while your ball's 10 yards away waiting for the guy to move his cart over to your ball and all that kind of jazz. So yeah, I, I think there's, it's, there are a lot of things to learn in this game and, um, and, and the, and with people that have less and less time to play it, those things become harder to learn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so it, it, I wish the game, um, was easier, uh, for people to, to take up and feel good about and stick with. But, you know, and I, but I think you're right. I think there are ways we can, we can do a better job with that as golfers and making it easier and more attractive, you know, to people who don't play. Cause man, we need them. You know, we, we need, we need those full T sheets and, uh, things have changed a lot in 30 years and, uh, and, and, and golf, golf needs the, 
needs new blood for sure. Yeah. One of the things I was going to ask you about is, you know, going on the trip like this and traveling and playing all these links courses, I was going to assume that it, it ruins you when you come back to America, that you must just go into some deep funk for a while, but you said you can switch gears pretty quickly. But it it reminded me of, of one scene in the book where you're at Castle Stewart and I, I think you're in the clubhouse or you're around the clubhouse and you look out and you see some guy walking around the golf course and he's he's taking pictures and it turns out he was a, a golf course architect. I think he said he worked for Tom one of Tom Doak's associates. And you I, for, I wish I had the line in front of me, but you go kind of go on off a, a, a really short tangent about how it's almost being in this link setting playing around the coast of Ireland where it's almost offensive to think of man altering the landscape, you know, using machinery to manufacture golf holes. But are you able to compartmentalize, you know, being in Scotland and playing basically on the most natural landscapes as there are to how golf is made in the rest of the world? You must be able to, (laughs) to be okay with that. I am because I'm a, cause I'm a junkie, man. You know, I'm a golf freak. Like I, I'll play anywhere, anytime, any course at the end of the day. Like if there's a hole and a score to be made, I'm in that said, yes, some settings are much more interesting and beautiful and enriching than others. And I remember, yeah, that day, um, it was the first time I'd heard the, um, of the vocation, a shaper. Cause that's what someone pointed out to me. Oh, that, that he's out there taking pictures because he's a shaper. And, and so I sort of learned a little bit more about what, you know, what a shaper is. And, and yeah, it was kind of like being in Scotland where the golf courses have been shaped by things like ice ages and glaciers and, you know, natural phenomena and all that, you know, to, to think that we need to shape them anymore was just, it just felt a little disappointing. I don't know. It felt disappointing, I suppose. Tom Morris didn't shape courses. He found them. Eddie Hackett in Ireland didn't shape courses. He just discovered them. Um, And that's probably a very um, naive point of view on my part. Um, Yes, I understand that there are golf courses that I love and have had so much fun at that have been the product of like so much bulldozed earth. But I also know that there's a lot I've played that haven't been touched. And that I found, and, and those are the courses that I found in Scotland and Ireland. Um, but yeah, I can definitely switch modes and come back to a course here that has fountains and evergreens and car paths everywhere. Um, as long as, and, and when I'm, when I'm playing that kind of course, you know, I'm playing because I want to make a number and I want to try and, you know, that, that constant quest in golf where you're trying to prove to yourself that you're better than you are you know that's always so tempting for me i don't really care so much where i'm doing it you know i'll find something good at it in every course or every round but i think i make the point in the book that like it, i can have a lot of fun at courses that are constructed or man-made or feel like imitations but there's just something about playing the genuine article and you're and you know it when you're doing it your your, your swing knows it your feet know it your eyes know it when you're playing land as the land has been laid naturally. And you find that certainly at places all over Scotland and Ireland. And, uh, and that is a kind of joy that, yeah, I don't experience in other places. One thing I appreciate about you is you come at writing and thinking about golf and golf courses from a slightly different perspective than I do. I can't help but go to places and 
entire regions and and kind of think analytically and even even critically about what I see and I, I categorize and I you know I can find false and I put things in hierarchies that's just the way my mind works and it always has and you are and I heard you say this in another podcast recently about how you know especially in this book it's more about the experience you look at things experientially and about mm-hmm. and it's it, there's really not a lot of a judgment about any particular golf course but do you have that inside you that you just didn't write about? I mean, do you have, you know, serious criticisms about some of the places that that you saw on this trip or when you're playing in the United States, places that, that you do wear the critics hat? It's funny. I, I do probably over here. Um, you know, I'm thinking I, a few golf courses in the area popped to mind just as you were saying that where – there's just, you know, a bad, that's just a bad golf hole, you know, um, that's poor design, that's a poor usage of the land, whatever, you know, that I, yeah, I do have those opinions, but I don't have them so much when I'm in Ireland and in Scotland, when I'm playing a links course, because it, I don't know, I feel like, who am I judging? You know, I, who are you going to judge if a hole, because a hole of Cruden Bay is blind, you know, because they have a awesome blind par three there. Or at Lahinch, you know, the Dell is a blind par three. And some, Amer- you know, I've heard American golfers complain about those holes and say it's not fair to have a blind par three. Well, like, who are you blaming? You know, it, it, old, old Tom Morris? Like, uh, Mother Nature? Like, this is, this is how the golf course is. Like, I, I feel like some of, these, some of these places, I don't know, they're, they're kind of like, I can't boo them. They're above the boo. Like they're, they're, they are what they are. They don't, they don't ever advertise themselves as perfect. Uh, they don't tell you that they're entirely fair. Um, they don't tell you that they're without their quirks. They just say, come and play. And, and if you're into it, that's great. Um, and, and really you should be, but it's something about like, maybe cause golf courses over here where we usually know who the designer was and we can imagine someone making choices or we see like, Jack Nicholas looking at a blueprint and thinking I'll do this instead of that so that we sort of play like Monday morning quarterback with designs, you know? So I, I think that like courses with like Doak's name attached to them or Hans or Corin Crenshaw, um, whose courses I love so many of their courses. But when you have a designer's name attached to something, um, I think it does tempt you like with modern courses that, that where you do know the designer, it does tempt you to, to sort of say, how, how would I have done this differently? And when I'm playing a Lynx course um, that's been around for more than 100 years, as most of them have been, I just never feel that temptation. I kind of like accept and enjoy what's in front of me because I feel like something bigger than me put it there. And it might sound corny, but, you know, that's how it feels. A couple of places that you did, probably more than any other places in the book, a couple of courses that you did have somewhat of a criticism for or maybe a great criticism for was one was the renaissance club that tom doak did near muirfield and the mm-hmm. other was uh, trump international at aberdeen which mm-hmm. <laughs> you didn't i mean you didn't really get into it but it was pretty clear that uh especially the latter w- w- you were not a fan of it do you care to elaborate on your criticism of that yeah absolutely the um you know so i did the book in 2015 I, or i did the research um i was in scotland in 2015 and i was doing this trip before um trump even announced candidate his candidacy so this is like all my impressions and my notes were taken all this was done pre-politics 
And I try to make that point in the book that I do not like to blend golf and politics. Though in Scotland right now, with Trump owning two courses, um, two big name courses, Turnberry and Trump Aberdeen, that, that that's sometimes difficult to do. But I, I do my best to not do it in a course called Scotland. So just to get that, you know, that if there's that my my feelings about what happened in Aberdeen, um, they were set well before anything. And I'm, I don't even want to talk about what my political inclinations are. Anyway, this is a golf podcast. But um, it's a life podcast. It's a life. It's a life. It's true. Man, culture. It's true. But nobody wants to talk politics. So they're listening to this so they can get away from politics. So anyway, Aberdeen, the issue was that I probably knew too much about how that sausage got made. Um, that I'd done a fair amount of research into the development of that lynx land. And had watched the You've Been Trumped documentary. Had read the articles in the papers over there. Had read uh, you know, the, the, the columns and what had been written about what happened there. And what happened there was not good. Um, it was, it set back golf course, um, development in Scotland, um, significantly. And I think the, the issues that they had and are probably still going to have up in Dornock, uh, court, uh, I guess at the cool links that Corin Crenshaw right. are trying to do, mm-hmm. um, that that project's been in the works for a long time. And last I'd heard that, okay, the last final approval had gone through, but there are still other hurdles I know that they, I'd also read that they have to climb. And the opposition is ardent because of what happened in Aberdeen. Because everyone now that wants to build a Lynx golf course in Scotland, they say, look at what Trump did in Aberdeen. And, and so, and what Trump did in Aberdeen um, is he, uh, I shouldn't say he, the, the developers, the construction of it. Um, they moved a ton of earth, they bulldozed dunes, they took an incredible, they took an awesome setting and they built what is aesthetically an awesome golf course. If you were out there to take pictures and like see drama, um, and wanted to like play, I mean, it's, it is like one stunning golf hole after the next, you know, um, it's visually, it'll blow you away and, and it feels very big. It almost feels American in its aspirations in that sense. Like when Trump said he wanted to build the world's greatest golf course, you can kind of like feel that it's, it's, it's over the top, you know, in, a, in an almost Trumpian way. And, uh, and some people play it and, and love it for that reason. Um, I went around it and, and noticed that, um, that there was a, that, you know, that there's a sign, that there's signage everywhere, that there's the Trump heraldry is, is on every T marker and there are six or five or six sets of T's that the cart paths are double wide because uh, as was told to me, Trump wanted carts to be able to pass each other. These are things that don't strike me as, as being great markers of, of pure links golf courses. Um, but what had also happened is that the community was isolated. They were not engaged their land. They felt like their land was usurped. There was a woman who lived by the, lived by the course who had her water supply shut off for like years um, there was a farmer who Trump attacked and called a pig living in a slum. This is a guy on an old family farm that had been around for hundreds of years and Trump wanted him out because he didn't like that his hotel was going to look at it. So he tried to bully the course into existence and that, um, not only is not good for golf, it was bad for like anyone that wants to do anything in Scotland, uh, in terms of a golf course, uh, who might be, um, you know, 
who's American or who's, who's going to hear again, like, let's not let Aberdeen happen again. And, and so I, I, I did object to the way that they handled um, the way that that was built. You don't bulldoze dunes. You don't move the dunes. And you don't then set them into place, which is something that Trump announced, like, hey, now that this, the course is built, we've arranged it so this land will never move again. And he trumpeted that as, as preservation. Well, with Duneland, it's actually the opposite. The dunes are meant to shift and, and move over time. Now, we're talking over thousands of years, but um, this is really natural. This is, this is, you know, really sensitive, beautiful, wonderful, wonder of the world kind of terrain that the British Isles have. And to treat it the way it was treated in Aberdeen um, is, is not a good thing. It's, it's not good for anyone. The absolute opposite was done in Makrahanish Dunes by David McClay Kidd. And that is the model for how you do it. You put a T where you can put a T. You put a green where you can fit a green. You let the sheep nibble down the grass and you go have and you go play golf. And the fact that someone did that, you know, within the last 20 years is a reminder that we can do it right. It just wasn't done right in Aberdeen. I mean, you clearly have an emotional connection to Lynx Golf. That's why, why you've written two books about it. And what's what we've been talking about so far for the last hour and I'm going to ask you a sticky question here, and but I think we need to ad- address it on some point because we talked, you know, we talked about the future of golf and how golf is going to proceed and how we need we have the opportunity if we try hard enough to change the models of golf, not just in America but ab- abroad. So Trump Aberdeen, you're talking about how they moved dunes and shifted, and you and you said you shouldn't bulldoze dunes. Do you think that the architect, the golf course architect, I believe it was Martin Hawtrey. Should he have just said no, walked away and said, I'm not going to partake of this? I mean, he's, he's British. He, he has, he might, I think he's, I think he's British. He may be Scottish, but he's definitely not Reese Jones. He, he should have been sensitive to that, shouldn't he? Uh, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, yeah, flat out. Yes. (laughs) The, uh, there's, I mean, yeah, you know, you're hired. I can understand the position he must have been in. You're hired to do this incredibly high profile and probably, well, who knows what he got paid. But um, sometimes the vendors don't do so well, I hear. Um, but anyway, <laughs> the, uh, you know, it's, it's a big, it was the biggest thing going in golf when, you know, Trump was going to build the best golf course in the world in Scotland. And you get that job. And, uh, and there's this demand that it be the best and it be the biggest. And so you have to big tall, you have to build taller and dig deeper. And, um, I can, I can definitely, you know, sympathize with being in that spot, but it still doesn't, you know, it's in watching some film from the making of, from the building of the golf course and, and people looking out where there was once a dune and coming back and it's gone, you know, that thing was there for, that, 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 that it's just, you know, maybe it's just a mound of sand and I don't mean to be sentimental about it, but that that's been there for probably thousands or, or millions of years. And it was made and it was put there, um, and created by some really unique, um, natural phenomena. And for that to just be, um, leveled, you know, to make a golf hole more interesting, I think it just does a disservice to every golfer. It's not good for our game. It makes it's 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 not what golf is about, and it's not what you know. If if I learned anything in Scotland about 
you know, the soul or the spirit of the game and playing all these courses and these old courses, um, you know, you certainly learn that you don't, that, that kind of stuff didn't happen, doesn't need to happen. And it's a real shame. You know, the, the, the thing that animates this book, obviously, is the golf talk like we're talking about and, and these discussions. And, you know, you, you write beautifully on Makarhanish Dunes and David Kidd's work there. Obviously, what I'm attracted to, because I keep asking, kind of going in these directions, is all these, these subtexts, you know, the emotional space that you get in when you're trying to figure out, you know, as you're playing around, like, what do you, do, what do you need to do to fix your swing? You know, other subtexts, you, you talk about also in A Course Called Ireland and this book as well how naturally you're kind of an introverted person and you kind of prefer to be alone. And yet you're thrust into this journey where you're constantly um, joined by other people and you welcome them, but your natural disposition is, is to want to go solo. So I'm curious at the end of the book or throughout the journey of the book. And by the end, you have a great appreciation and almost at one point, you know, you receive a letter, a very emotional letter from somebody that it makes you tear up. You've accepted the society around you so right. there's this kind of push and pull with your natural desire to be a lone wolf with the you know all this these things that are happening around you that are inclusive and societal so where do you come out on that now you've gone through this journey i mean are you did you go back to your old you know head down <laughs> ways or are you are you good with embracing people and and having company around you yeah i think in the book i talk about myself as being an extroverted isolator and, um, I think that's probably a temperament. Yeah, it's a good that, word. Did you make that up or is that, that a clinical word? Oh no, I word? think that was like a clinical diagnosis. <laughs> okay. point. It's a good description. And I, yeah. And I think that that's not, I think a lot of people are probably that way. Um, and I think maybe it's a mindset that lends itself to the, this sort of writing life because, or, or a creative life or whatever, just, you know, because one part of me enjoys being around wants to be around people and craves attention and wants to, to be where everything's going on. And then also, but probably even more so wants to be alone. And, um, at least for this kind of job that works out. Okay. Because you have to do both. So with doing the trip, you know, is a busy time where I have a lot of people with me and then sometime when I don't have people with me, but for the most part, it's a, um, you know, I'm out there meeting folks, talking to folks, collecting stories. And then, you know, you spend six to 12 months in an office by yourself. And so to be able to do both of those things, I think that introvert, you know, extroverted isolator is pretty well suited to, to those two modes. So I guess, you know, maybe that's why I was attracted to, to a writing life or just, um, why it does sort of work for me, uh, is that I guess it does suit those two sides of my personality, but I mean, you know, they can both show up in any given at the same time or in the, you know, minutes apart where you feel like, um, yeah, this is great. Look at, we're having a, you know, look who's, we just had a party for, um, to launch the book and everyone who was in the book came, um, people flew in from, around i guess around the world because duff came from london gretchen came in from washington penn came up from virginia scott came from florida these are all names if you read the book that folks that you'll get to know 
Lindsay came from Boston. Um, it was amazing. We got everyone back together and it just felt, it, it was just so happy and joyful and, and gratifying and just like miraculous too. Like you do this, you go, you go out golfing and you go out to, to Scotland to golf your brains out and, and suddenly you have this pack of like 20 to 25 people who are all bonded and uh, in a really unique way. And I felt just incredibly, incredible happiness um, for, that, for that night and for that element of the book and these people that I've met that have become probably the best friends I've ever had. And at the same time, you know, when everyone left, I felt really good too <laughs> because <laughs> there's, that, there's that sense of like, okay, I just need to kind of like be alone and digest all of this. And it can be even a little over, it can be a little overwhelming um, for me uh, to be the sort of, when I was the center of attention of what was happening, you know, that being the launch of my book and we're all there to celebrate it. And, and there's part of me who wishes like we were celebrating somebody else. It's kind of strange. So yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's just how I'm wired. And if any, it, it's, it's, it's been a, I guess it's been a blessing in that it's made me a good listener and it's also made me, you know, very comfortable, um, sitting at a laptop and banging away for 12 hours. I'll, I'll it, 10 hours will pass and I won't even notice it. So that's worked out well. Right. So the motor of the book, the device is you're moving around and you're working toward this qualifier, which of course we won't give away what, what happens during that. But the real story is, is a personal kind of growth and development. I mean, you're, it's, it's clear throughout this journey that you go on, that, that you're seeking something, you know, in ostensibly you're seeking for the one thing, the secret to golf or whatever it is about golf that you might discover in these naturally created landscapes of golf. But it's, it's really about what's happening with inside you. So much happened in your life between the finishing of the Ireland book and this book, radical things happened in your life. And on your journey, you know, there's a constant, you're, you write, how you're constantly seeing if you can do this. Can you overcome these things? You're challenging yourself. You're, and occasionally you go into dark places. You write, mm -hmm. especially like toward the, toward the end of your journey, you know, you're trying to hit every single course. There's one course where you just go Western Gales, where you basically walk off the course after a few holes. I mean, you're just yeah. you're at your limit at that point. And you haven't got to that place where you're, you needed to go. You haven't, I don't think at that point you'd found anything yet. And then you go to Askernish, which is the old recovered course out on the outer Hebrides in Southeast. And that is kind of like the, the climax of the book. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that was a, you know, it would, the, the walking off the course was sort of the darkest before dawn moment in, in the story. And I didn't manipulate the events so that I would have like a big, a big event before act three unfolds. Mm -hmm. It just, you know, that's just how it went. I, I, I'd hit, hit a wall. Um, and, and that was probably, and that had, that was probably related to just what we were talking about. I had a lot of people with me in Ayrshire and, and it was, and I wanted them to be there and it was a sort of a celebration of the wrapping up of like, of this long trip, but it also became all just like a bit too much. And, I, and I, and I did, I just kind of felt like, uh, I can't, 
I just need to, I be, I do need to go isolate. I need to go be by myself. I need to get away from golf. Um, and that's when I left for Askernish and Askernish became this sort of rebirth for me right at the time when I, when I did desperately need it. Um, this sort of like, just this, this feeling of, uh, you know, that this all had a purpose, um, that this all had a reason, you know, and that was to bring me right to this very place. And the place is special, not just because it's a good golf course. It's special because of what you have to do to get there. It's special because it's been, it's this untouched gem. It's the opposite, you know, as we were having that conversation about manufactured versus this is the ultimate, you know, not manufactured golf course. It's been, it was left fallow for a hundred years. They didn't even know it was there. Um, so going there and having like, I played it four times. I just went around four times in one day. I just kept going and going. And, uh, and that was, I think the spiritual moment of the book. Uh, it was a spiritual moment of the trip, um, where it all just, it all just kind of clicked and it made sense. And thank God it did. I don't know how I would have ended the book if it didn't, you know, we wouldn't have had an ending. Um, Tom drives really off genuine. the cu- yeah. cliffs. <laughs> I jump off the cliffs at Turnberry. Um, so it, but it, that's just sort of, I knew that Askerish would be special. So I saved it for last, but that it came right on the heels of me sort of being at my lowest point. It's funny, you know, with our lowest points in our, in our lives and our darkest moments, you know, how they are so, how they rub right up against our, our, our brightest moments, you know, and our high points, you know, and how they almost touch each other. And I think going from Ayrshire to my Askernish experience, that's exactly what happened. Like all the dark stuff just, just totally just turned over and flipped into something else. And I just was taken with this incredible gratitude for everything that had happened. So the question is, have you been able to hold on to that that mindset, that Askernish piece of mind that you got? I mean, is that it's something? Hard. Is there something there that you can apply every day going forward? It's hard, um, and I do on a daily basis try to check in with that part of my head or my spirit or whatever. You know, like I do try to check in with that present, grateful side of me. But it's a lot easier to check in with that when you're alone on a beautiful golf course at twilight. And it's harder to do when you're running two little kids off to school and have a meeting at 9 and class at 10.30. You know, life is busy. And it's, and it's, it's just much harder in the way we live our lives. Um, I also didn't have any cell service out there. That was pretty helpful. It's our, our damn phones, you know. Um, mm-hmm. it's just, there's just so much to get you out of that mindset in the, you know, at least in the, in, in the life, you know, the, that I live here, I think that most people live constantly distracted. So I am making, I do, I, but I still do make an effort. I think there was, you know, the things that I learned and experienced on that trip, they have stuck with me. It doesn't mean that I walk around in like an Askernish state of mind, um, all the time. Uh, in fact, it's pretty rare. But I know that it can happen, and that's that's that definitely makes the trip worth it. Yeah, you know that there's there's a part of you that that in, inhabits that space, exactly. so it's it's reachable. And yeah, it is, and it is for everybody. You know, um, it just it's a little. Uh, it just sometimes takes a little more effort than other times. <laughs> Maybe go to Askernish. <laughs> that takes effort. 
Exactly. Exactly. I have one more thing I want to, I, before our respective situations blow up, I w- wanted to ask you one more question. You know, you are more or less a Lynx expert now, so you're the one of the best people to ask this question. Do you consider Bandon, for instance, like a true Lynx experience? How do you do, do you differentiate between uh, a place like Bandon or, or, or Cabot? You know what? That is an awesome question because guess where I'm leaving for tomorrow? Bandon. I'm going to Bandon tomorrow. I hate you. I know. I, I hate myself. The <laughs> well, no, my wife was just saying that actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the because like I've written that we don't have True Links courses in the United States, and so, but I've never been to Bandon because so I've written that and people write back to me. Well, what about Bandon? What about Bandon? So I'm going. Um, yeah, I did not I know that. I, I, I did not know I, you hadn't been there. I hadn't been. So all right. Maybe I was saying all of this from a real place of ignorance, um, claiming that we don't have True Links courses. Uh, I can't wait. I'm so excited. I mean, I've, I've obviously heard nothing but amazing things about it. And um, I have been to Cabot. And I would say that their Cabot Links is, is plays like, that's, that's good stuff. That's true. That, I mean, that's, that felt like a, re- a true link, Scottish Lynx golf course. Maybe not so much like an Irish Lynx where you get more of the like wild sort of rumpus through the dunes. But the the core Crenshaw course is sort of more a cliffside, cliff top course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just absolutely visually stunning and some, it has awesome golf holes. But I actually like preferred like the sort of quiet confidence of the, the Cabot Lynx course, the original course. Um, and yeah, I would put that in a links classification for sure. Um, so, but on Bandon TBD and I, uh, I can't wait to, do you have an assignment? Uh, Where can we, how can we find out your judgment on this? Follow me on, at, on Twitter at coin writer, Instagram. Yeah. No, you know, what? I'll nice probably plug. end up, <laughs> yeah, always be closing. Um, I probably coffee will, right there. <laughs> it's for closers. Yeah. I will probably eventually probably do something in the golfer's journal about it i would imagine abandon versus the other links but i've been writing so much link stuff right now i think everyone's tired of me going on about links so maybe that'll have to come a little bit down the line but who can get enough links i hope they're not tired yet i think we've got a little more mileage out of that exactly links for all links forever all right one last one real quick i know askernish is is close to your heart that's in its own separate category Cruden Bay or Karn? Oh, wow. You really do know my books. Is that that? (laughs) I'm a fan. Dude, that hits right at the heart. Uh, I'm going to have to say, because Cruden Bay was my Scottish number one, but I'm going to have to say Karn just because I've gotten to know it so much. I've had more time to get to know it over the years, and I've still, I've only played Cruden Bay once. But after the Scotland book and discovering Karn and, and that becoming my top of the pops, you know, I've been back several times. Um, they made me an honorary lifetime member. So that scores them some points for sure. Ooh, yeah. Wink, wink, Cruden Bay. No, just <laughs> kidding. Um, <laughs> no. Um, it's so, you know, I somebody's licking there. a stamp right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I just do this for the memberships, man. No. And, uh, going to need so a bigger just, closet for all the jackets that you get. <laughs> I'll take a tie. That's fun. No, oh, like at Murfield. Can you, that, yeah, that was, exactly. that's the ultimate score, right? It, totally. So Karn, it just has okay. more pieces that are close to the heart right now. Um, and, 
and that's the place I, you know, that, that that's the spot. Tom, great talking to you. Really appreciate hooking up with you to do this. Love the book. Course called Scotland. If anybody out there is listening and you haven't bought it yet, you got to get it. Your collection's not complete without it. If you love golf, it's a must-have. Great job, Tom. Derek, thank you so much. All right. Good luck at Bandit. Have fun. Thanks, dude. All right. So that was Tom Coyne. Uh, we had that discussion in the evening, and each of our wives took our children uh, separately away, plying them with, I don't know, Teen Titans Go or other mindless entertainment while the husbands got some work done. <laughs> but it was a little bit under duress with the threat uh, at any given moment that children could come barging in and destroy the conversation. Of course, A Course Called Scotland can be read as sort of a, a travelogue, as a guide to Scottish links courses. But I found the parts that I was most interested in were the parts that were more personal to Tom. And I hope we, tr- we tried to get into a lot of those details and some of the things that had been going on in his life and, and some of the, the thoughts that were in his head and how he was kind of bat- really battling some, some things th- throughout that trip and finding out a lot about himself. So, of course, the book's about golf, but it's about much more than that. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk to him about, get into some of, some of those ideas beyond the golf. Um, and I hope, we, I hope we did. I think we did. I thought Tom was really good on on American golf and the differences between American golf and Scottish golf and the possibilities or the non-possibilities of the American golf culture changing and adapting and becoming something slightly more like Scottish golf where Scottish golf the grounds for golf are, are public and they're important to communities he's also really good and very passionate about the sanctity of Dunesland and Lynxland and the importance of not fucking with it too much uh, the way that it is, was done in uh, certain places like Trump International. But I really enjoyed that talk. I hope we got to some places that you haven't heard Tom go before in other podcasts and the, all the other media that he's been doing. But thanks to Tom for joining me and taking the time. Thanks to you all for listening. As always, as you know, you can find this podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, on Google Play, and you can subscribe to the podcast there as well. You can leave star ratings. You can leave reviews, commentary. You can go to feedtheball.com, leave some comments. I'll get back to you. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at feedtheball. This podcast is also now on Spotify. You can do a, a search there. Just go to the podcast section and type in Feed the Ball, and past episodes will come up. And until we do this again, thank you very much for listening. I'd also like to thank the Sundogs and Will and Lee Haraway for the music. We've got more shows in the pipeline. And until we do this again, cheers. Cheers.